You may be seated. Today I want to start a sermon series through the Nicene Creed. And as we unpack the first article of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I want to read this scripture from Isaiah's prophecy. It's there, there on page 11 in your bulletin, and I'll just read through this. Talking about our God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? With whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths will faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. And bless our hearts, Lord, make us fertile soil for this word as we hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. Why am I preaching through the Nicene Creed? The reason is quite simple. I would like for all of you, for your joy, to be full. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what I want for you, for your joy to be full. I want you all to have solid, as one of our hymns puts it, solid joy. And I can imagine right away some of you thinking, wow, Pastor, So you're going to try to make our joy deeper by preaching through the Nicene Creed. You know, I've got an Amazon wish list. Maybe we can start with that if you really want to deepen my joy. You know what I love about the Creed? It's not about you and your little life or my little life. The Creed is about God. 
your life may have some nice little sunbeams that you like, you like, and they're good sunbeams. Sunbeams are good. God is the sun. God is pure, boundless goodness and light. He is an ocean of goodness that has no bottom and no shore. And if you know God, really know him, and you enjoy God, what you will find is his springs of water in every desert you walk in. You live without God, with your tiny little life, and you're going to find your life is full of broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, I can imagine an objection right away, and it's a good objection, preaching a creed. Why, pastor, would you give weight, that kind of weight, to a man-made human document, which the creed obviously is? I mean, we just recited it. That's not Bible. It's humanly written. Why on earth would you give such weight? In fact, why do you Presbyterians in general give so much weight to these historical creeds? Well, there's a strong version of this objection. And the strong version of this objection is that biblical faith is not grounded in man's words, obviously. Biblical faith is grounded in God's words. That's why I'm using scripture, by the way. I'm not actually preaching to the creed. I'm preaching the Bible, but using the creed. But it's true. Our faith is grounded in what God says. The truth that we believe is from above. It's not from below. It comes from the mouth of the Lord. It had better <laughs> if we're going to really build on it. Otherwise, we're building on sand. We don't build our faith on a human construct. But here is why creeds matter. When God speaks, we are to confess what God has said. Yes? When God speaks, man is to say, Amen, Lord. Abraham amened God, and he was counted righteous. When God speaks, we are to repeat what God has said. We are to meditate on what God has said. We are to digest what God has said. We are to put what God has said in memorable forms that we can remember because we need to remember the word of the Lord. And that is not just part of the church's worshiping God. God likes to hear us speak back to him what he has said. That's also part of our teaching and our testifying. It's not enough for me to stand up here every Sunday and just you know, throw Bible verses at you guys. I am to teach, the church is to teach what Paul, the Apostle Paul calls sound doctrine. And when we go out and preach on the streets, we're not just opening up and reading the Bible. We are putting in our human words the good news that God has spoken to us. That's what God wants us to do. Now, it is absolutely true that we can respond to the word of the Lord very poorly. There are things people have said God has said that are just wrong. <laughs> and we should always be checking what man says against what God has said. But it is actually not true that creeds and confessions of faith and catechisms, that these are purely human because at their best, they are one way of saying what God has said, and he commands us to do that. Are you with me? That's the strong objection, and I hope I've answered that. Now, there are a couple of really sophomoric versions of this objection, that the creed is just a purely human document. One of my favorites, one of my favorite sophomoric versions, is that these creeds, the Nicene Creed, for example, these are written by dead white males. That's the kind of thing that carries all kinds of weight in 2023. The creed is written by dead white males, so it has value, I guess, only for dead white males. I'm going to let Carl Truman respond to this. His book, The Creedal Imperative, I very much commend to you. 
the answer says quite well. He says, being dead, white, or male is neither here nor there when it comes to the issues of theological truth. Just because pundits cannot see beyond race, gender, and whether someone has a pulse does not mean that the rest of us need to cower before their simplistic categories. Many theologians I read may be dead, white, though hardly the case for Augustine, I should think. I would add for a bunch of African theologians in the, in the church. But that does not mean they have nothing to say. All humans are partakers, this is, this is crucial, all humans are partakers of a common human nature. All are addressed by the same revelation of the same God. And all are called to respond to that revelation. So it doesn't matter what your race, gender, or you know, whether you're living or dead. When God speaks, because we're all human, we are to respond and we can learn from each other learn from each other's responses. So that's one very sophomoric version of this objection. And there is a, a final sophomoric objection, very common in what we call evangelical churches, and that is the no creed but Christ objection. You know, I, it's just, pastor, it's me, my Bible, and Jesus, and we've got it. We don't need traditions. We don't need the church telling us, you know, what doctrine is. Here's the problem with that. You take someone that believes that, no creed but Christ, just me and my Bible, open your mouth and say anything about Christ, and now we know what your creed is. There is no Christianity without a creed. There is no Christianity without saying something about what God has said. And again, I think Truman is very good on this, and he really gets to the, to the root of the problem here. He says Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. That's not the dividing line. Christians are divided between those who have public creeds and confessions that are written down as public documents subject to public scrutiny and critique versus those who have private creeds and confessions that are often improvised, unwritten, and so they are not open to public scrutiny, they are not susceptible to evaluation, and crucially and ironically, they are not therefore subject to testing by Scripture to see whether they are true. If Ben Miller's got a private creed that I created, it's not even public thing that the whole church can weigh in on as to whether I've read the Bible correctly. So public creeds are very important. So that's why I want to I take time with the creed and make sure we know what it says and why it says what it says. Hopefully you've cleared a little bit of ground for this series then, but I want to now turn to our text. And you can argue with me about this later. It's fine. I welcome that. It's a happy thing. I want to look at what the creed actually confesses in response to what God has said about himself. Who is our God? And we'll look at two things today the creed tells us about our God, working from Isaiah. The first thing is that God is one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. So let's begin with this. As Christians, at the very core of our faith and of our ethics, interestingly, is monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's our faith. And therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. There's the ethics. Now, notice when we confess, I believe in one God. We are confessing something both about God in himself and about God in relation to everything else. So we're actually saying something about God himself, and we're saying something about how, how God in relation to everything else. What we're saying about God in himself is this. I believe, we believe, in one God. We are saying about God that God is undivided. 
God is not broken into parts. He is not composed. God's, he's one God. God's essential being, if we can try to imagine this, is pure. It is pure and perfect beyond, it is pure and perfect beyond all imperfections, beyond all limits, beyond all change. You know, how do you wrap your mind around that? I mean, God, God, I believe in one God. He, he is pure, he is perfect, and he is beyond all limitations. He is beyond all boundaries. He is beyond all change. There is no process in him. There is no becoming in him. God is not developing in any way. There is no motion in God. God is one. In his very essence, he is pure and perfect, beyond imagination and beyond limits. There is no distinction in God of part and whole. If I have a whole car... I also have a car that's composed of parts, and if you gradually take away one part, then the next part, then another part of the car, eventually you don't have a car anymore because the whole car is dependent on the parts of the car. God is not like that. God has no part and whole distinction. God does not have parts. Otherwise, he'd be dependent on the parts, and God is not dependent on anything. God is not a bundle of different features or different qualities where we kind of like talk about this one feature or quality of God and eventually we've kind of shaded over it and now we're talking about a different feature or different quality of God because everything that God is he is in pure perfect limitless timeless changeless perfection everything that he is when we say God is love we're not saying God has love as one of his features God is love purely limitlessly, timelessly, changelessly in perfection. That's what we're saying about God. God is one. The reason why we can't find any good analogies for any of this is because there are no good analogies for any of this. There's nothing in creation you can compare to God. But that's what we're saying in in himself, God is undivided. And in relation to everything else, then, God is obviously incomparable. Because God is who he is, it is actually impossible that there should be any other like him. God is unrepeatable. And to be clear, in 2023, we need to say this. We are not saying merely that there is no other God for us Christians, that in our little tribe, there's only one God. No, we are actually confessing that in objective truth for all people, there is no other. There is one God. This God we worship defines godness. And so any so-called God who claims to be what this God is, is a lie. It is false. I believe in one God. This means that we are, as Christians, are not dualists in the way we look at the cosmos. You know, the dualism is the idea there's this kind of good power and there's this bad power. They're kind of duking it out. No, there's one God, and he is absolute goodness. And there's no pluralism in the divine realm. Because God is who he is, there are not and there cannot be multiples of him, whether as a bunch of equals or in some kind of hierarchy like on Mount Olympus. And this is why God is one. He is unrepeatable. There is, and can, there is no other. There cannot be another. That is why at the core of all reality is peace. There's no conflict because there's no multiples. There's peace because God is one. Well, you know, Isaiah, as you read through this chapter, he just thunders this. Nothing compares. Nothing compares to God. Verse 18, to whom will you liken me? God just challenges us. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
Isaiah push, points out again and again, the reason why there cannot be anyone to compare, any creature to compare with God, is because God is before and beyond all of them. He is before everything. He is the being from whom everything else actually receives its being. He says in verse 26, look at it. He says, take a look up on high. Look at the stars. Because God is strong in power, not one of them is missing. He brings out their host by number. He spoke and he threw the galaxies and the universes into existence. He is before all things. To whom are you going to compare him then? And he doesn't stop there and kind of drift away into like, you know, some sort of God world where we don't hear from him anymore. He then sovereignly determines every creature's role, every creature's place in his creation. Verse 12, he measures the waters. He marks off the heavens with a span. He encloses the dust of the earth in a measure. He, he puts boundaries around things. This is your place. This is your role. And he commands the destinies of his creatures. He sits above the circle of the earth. They're like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing. He says of the rulers of the earth, it's time for you to become an emptiness. And our creed, you will notice, confesses all of this about God, that God is before and beyond all things. In these words, I believe in God, one God. What's next? The Father Almighty. Trying to capture this beforeness and beyondness of God. Let me say something about God identifying himself in the masculine as Father. Because in the Bible, God's self presentation is invariably masculine. There are no exceptions. Even where God depicts himself doing motherly things, and he does. The verb forms are all masculine verbs. And yet what is puzzling about this, as God clearly speaks of himself in a masculine way, what is curious is that there is not a hint anywhere of male sex in God. God is not a sexual being at all. God does not need a female consort, unlike, say, the pagan god Baal. God has no female consort. God is not male. He has no male sexuality. Because his masculinity, as he presents himself with masculine verbs, his masculinity is not masculinity in relation to a feminine other. That's not the point of the masculinity. It has nothing to do with masculinity set over against some feminine other. God's masculinity, the way he presents himself in, in, in masculinity, is in the context of what we call paternity. God represents himself in the masculine because God fathers things. Now, there's a very pale analogy here in the realm of human reproduction, and parents, I will keep this G-rated, but in human reproduction, that which proceeds from the male proceeds from the male. It initiates, it goes forth to make life, and there's a very pale shadow there of an analogy to God's fathering. When we say God fathers, what we mean is God sovereignly, with no dependence on what he's about to beget, he just chooses to beget. He chooses to bring forth. He decides and determines and elects, we could say, to create. God's will is fully generative without any dependence on any other factor or any other being. He wills it and it is done. 
There is no necessity of a partner. He does not need a consort. He doesn't need anything outside of him. James says, of God's own will, he just brought us forth. God is a father with no need of a mother. But his, what, when he presents himself to us masculinely, it is because he is the father who initiates and sovereignly brings forth the life of all things. I think Paul Mankowski has just wonderfully expressed this when he says God's activity is masculine because it's fatherly. It's fatherly because the initiative, the prerogative, and the motive power of creation are God's and God's alone. That's, the, that's why the masculine presentation, to show us that creation just comes forth from God's will. Israel is a product of God just choosing them into existence with no dependence on anything else. And so as the Father Almighty, you'll notice Isaiah says, God is not wearied in any way because his will is just generating life from within himself. He is not wearied in any way by creating, by sustaining, by governing all things and all of creation. He does not faint or grow weary at all. God loses nothing as he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's father language. He's not, he loses nothing by giving everything because he is inexhaustible. He is infinite. He is boundless. Isaiah says in verse 30, everything in creation runs down. Even strong, strapping young men get exhausted. Those who lean on God have life and strength and blessing that is inexhaustible. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now let's confess what our Father brings forth. Because he is, I believe, in one God, the Father Almighty. I also believe in one God who is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. This is the second thing. Because in confessing that God is the, the maker, God is the quote-unquote Father of all things, he brings all things forth, notice that we are also confessing, this is so important, and for you younger folks, I want to try to you know, emphasize this because I think this will encourage you. We, when we say God is the maker, the father of all creation, we are also confessing that heaven and earth and all that is therein, all creatures in heaven and earth, visible and invisible creatures, they are God's idea. They're God's idea. Meaning what? Well, meaning first, quite obviously, that creatures are not God. I mean, do let's pause there again. Creatures are, they're God's idea, but as God's idea and the fruit of his ideas, they're not God himself. I mean, Isaiah puts this, you know, quite in a rather picturesque way, beginning in verse 19, when he talks about, you know, crafting an idol out of silver or wood. I mean, you know, if you take a creature in this world or in the heavenly realm and you try to carve that thing, into something that is worthy of your worship and worthy of your trust. Not only is that delusional, because it cannot be God, <laughs> it insults the creature. You just took this poor tree, which could have just stood there and minded its own business as a glorious tree. Or maybe it could have been cut down and turned into a useful piece of wood to do something worth something in the world. Instead of letting it be a tree or turning it into something useful, you have debased this poor tree into this dumb idol that is going to stand there. And as Isaiah says at the end of verse 20, it will not move. You can pray and dance and cut yourself. It's going to stand there because it's made to stand there. It's not God. 
You know, we do this in human relationships. You ever been on the other end of someone trying to carve you into something that they can finally really, like, worship? It's hell. The technical term for it is codependency, right? Nobody, no creature can be carved into something that can satisfy the heart of another being entirely. That is God alone. And it's true, likewise, if you worship a nation, yea, even the United States of America, or you put your trust in princes, Isaiah tells us, you're confusing the pawns with the player. Before God, he tells us in verse 17, before God, all nations. I mean, you know, we look at certain superpowers in our time. God says, look, stack them up over history, the superest of the superpowers, all nations before God. They're actually less than nothing. They are emptiness. The Hebrew word that is used in creation when the creation was an empty waste. They're, they're like nothing. And, and he, he says, you know, in verse uh, 23, princes, you know, we, we look at princes and we, we're tempted to like fall down before them and you're our hope, you'll bring us prosperity, you'll bring us security. God brings princes to nothing by his counsels. He will raise them up, he'll let them take root, and he turns them into emptiness as well. Creatures are not God, but precisely in not being God, creatures are very good. God likes his creatures. As C.S. Lewis put it so well, he likes them because he invented them. And so, so should we. We should like creatures because God likes his creatures. R.J. Snell says it so beautifully. He says, the only proper response to the world that God created as you look at it is to say these words, it is good that you exist. And that should be our response to the things God has made. Creatures in heaven and earth, it's good that they exist. So while God is absolutely distinct from his creation, we are not pantheists. We never look at any created thing and worship it as if it is God. God is absolutely distinct from his creation, but he loves his creation. He's involved in his creation. We are not deists. Deists believe that God sort of wound up the cosmos and then walked away and is just letting it un unwind. No, God created things, and then it says God saw them and he blessed them. Do you ever get out of bed in the morning with the, with the sense which is true that God from his heavenly dwelling place sees you and he speaks blessing toward you, especially now through Jesus? God sees what he has made and he blesses it. And that is why as Christians who believe in the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That is why we so resolutely reject the idea that really spiritual people, really holy people, really godly people get as far away from earthly things as they possibly can to spend their days, you know, sort of chanting prayers. I, Herman Bovink has a stunning line in one of his articles. He says, all world flight all trying to get away from the world, run off into the desert and tuck yourself away in a monastery and chant prayers the rest of your life, all world flight is a repudiation of the first article of our creed. If you feel a need to get away from creations because you don't believe in one God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, we should be soaking ourselves in the goodness of creation because it is the Lord's. God put us on earth with a soul, yes, but a body too, because God wants us to study what he's made and delight in what he's made and become skillful in using everything that he has made. You know, there are times when touch grass is very good advice. Go touch some grass. Better grow some grass. 
Because the creed, this first article of the creed, it should make us very critical of manufactured ways of life that distance us from creation and distract us from creation. Because the earth, the land, and what grows in it, and the creatures that run around on it, this stuff that God has made, and the atmosphere, and all of this, the earth is the Lord's, and the scriptures say he has given the earth to the children of men. And so the more you and I choose, and we are doing this so much now, we choose to live isolated with our machines, the more we begin to be tempted over time to begin to treat all creatures and eventually even treat ourselves like machines. We begin to think of creatures as things that we can fashion to our specifications. Because you know what you do with a machine that doesn't do what you want? You either smash the machine or you get a new one or you fix the thing and get it to do what you want. That is not how creation is. But we're tempted in the modern world to see creation as if it's some kind of machine and even people as if they, we can fashion them to our specifications. You know, parenting has just beat this out of me. I thought I'd have kids I could just wind up and like control. They're, they're, they're like shockingly not how I would imagine them being because God made them. And I think this, this sort of machine-like quality, this manufactured way of life where we're distanced from and distracted from creation explains a lot of what is happening in our world now socially. I had a, a very painful comment made to me by a young person recently. This person looked at me with utter sincerity and said, you know what? I just more and more have realized people don't care about each other. As you interact with people, it's just like amazing how often you just realize they don't care about each other. And it's very easy to talk this up to political polarization. Well, we don't like each other because, you know, they're Democrats and Republicans. No, you know, this, this growing sense that very often in our world, people just don't really care about each other. It flows from our denatured way of life because we are habituated now to view things in terms of how efficiently they can give us what we want. That's the modern mind. I just look at things in my life and I want to know what can most efficiently, hopefully cheaply, just give me what I want. Rather than encountering the things in our life as created gifts that bear the stamp of one who is Lord and I must submit to his gift and what comes in that gift, the givenness of the gift, and discover that the value of this gift may reveal itself to me in ways that are both surprising and even inconvenient. I didn't really want this weather today. And yet God is giving me something that has value, that may surprise and unsettle and inconvenience me. People are so much this way. But we no longer in our lives practice tending and caring for and receiving and cultivating and growing anything, really. And so it's very little wonder we have not learned how to do that kind of tending and receiving and cultivating well when it comes to our human relations. We're just not, Luke said it so well earlier, we're just not prepared to receive what is set before us by the Lord, the givenness of it. But I believe in one God who is the maker of heaven and earth of all these things visible and invisible. Let me come back to solid joy and I'll be done. Solid joy, this first article of our creed shows us that solid joy is found in living between our Father and his world, with both the Father and his world. People live well when their hearts are drawn both to God's good gifts. You should love creation. 
love the world and drawn to the God whose glory and whose goodness are just infinitely greater than all created things. That's the good life. Loving on the world, but drawn also to just worship and adore and be in just gobsmacked awe of the God who has made it all with a word and sustains and governs it all. And it's a good reminder to us, we think about you know, maybe, maybe some weaknesses in our solid joy. Some of us are so mesmerized by earthly things that we actually don't relate to God much at all. I mean, I see this among Christians, people that are just so into their earthly stuff, they don't talk to God, they don't read his word, they don't pray, they don't sing, they don't worship, they don't think about him, they just are busy doing life. And they show up at church on Sunday, and that's pretty much it. No wonder you're miserable. That is appallingly unthankful. It's idolatrous, actually. God rebuked Israel and said he was going to bring curses on them because, and notice the language, because you did not serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Because you're just unthankful. You're not just joyful in the fact that God loves you and he's given you all these things. You know, no wonder. You forget God. It makes you miserable. But you know, and Luke brought this out earlier too, some of us, we're kind of the opposite. We're tired of the world. (laughs) We like churchy stuff. We like living in a little religious silo, doing religious stuff with religious people because it enables us to escape from all the insane frustration of dealing with the real creation that God made. We don't really want to face and we don't really know how to handle the world as God is right now setting it before us. Sometimes I run into worship on Sunday because I'm just so glad the week is over because it's just beating me up. But God is meeting us. God is addressing us, beloved, in the messy granularity of our everyday earthly lives, in the creaturely realm, God is meeting us, God is speaking to us, God is dealing with our hearts. And it takes practice to learn how to enjoy and serve the Lord there on the street, in life, right there in the mess of creation, and now creation stricken by sin, to, to serve the Lord with gratitude and with contentment and with skill and with endurance. God is calling us to to, to live with him, not run off to a silo. And the very purpose of creation, even creation now stricken with sin, because God is still working in his creation stricken with sin. We'll get to that more with the rest of the creed. The purpose of creation, these things in our daily life, even the very frustrating, inconvenient things, God is putting those before us to deal with them because he wants us to actually experience, not just read in a book, not just think about, not just talk about in some you know, group we, we get together and, and just you know, talk out things. God wants us to experience on the ground in reality his glory coming through creation, his love for us in creation, and yes, his grace amid the sin. That's solid joy. That's solid joy. More next week. All right. Father, bless these things to our hearts. May our confession be more than just words. May it be worship to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.